If you got a Bible, you can open to Mark chapter one. This is gonna be our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen for you um, as we read it so you can follow along. In Mark chapter one, beginning in verse 14, we'll read down through verse 20. That'll be our text this morning. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We're in a series of messages entitled Follow Me, taking a look at what it means to come after Jesus as his disciple. He calls us to himself. What does that look like for us? And so what we've seen so far in this series of messages is that coming after Jesus as his disciple means that you order your everyday life around the message and mission of Jesus, right? And so we've seen so far that it looks like siding with Jesus against yourself, denying yourself, uh, saying yes to Jesus, and oftentimes means saying no to myself, It looks like taking up your cross daily. We said in another message that it looks like serving Jesus instead of yourself. So instead of pursuing my agenda and my purposes and my plans, I'm gonna lay those aside, let those be crucified and allow Christ now to live in me and through me. We also saw last week, Brian did a great job for us unpacking the message of Jesus, that what it looks like to follow Jesus is to order your life around not only this initial turning from sin and trusting in Christ, but a continual turning from sin and trusting in Christ. As you continue to say day after day, I believe that what God has said is better than what I think. I don't know if that strikes you, but it strikes me at times. Right, so there's this ordering our lives around the message and mission of Jesus. This morning, what I want us to drill down on is this mission of Jesus. What has Jesus come to do? What has he come to accomplish? And how is it that we order our lives around that? And we're gonna take a look at this text in Mark's gospel. Um, as, uh, again, as we uh, kind of unfold the mission of Jesus. Because to pursue the mission of Jesus, to order your life around his mission, means this, essentially, and, and very basically, it means that you labor, right, you don't, listen, you don't labor for acceptance with God, you don't labor for approval with God, you don't labor to earn God's love, but you labor from all of that. Right from God's acceptance, from God's approval, from God's love that's been shed abroad on us in Jesus Christ. And because of who God is and what he's done in adopting us into his family as sons and daughters, if you're a Christian this morning, then you labor. Then you work from that, not for it. But you do labor. And you labor by the power of the Holy Spirit to move, to work toward God's end by God's means. Right? That's what I want us to see in this text this morning. We're working toward God's end by God's means as those who are ordering our life around the mission of Jesus. So the first question is this, is what is the end toward which God is moving all of human history? Everything that we see and experience. Right? And the end is this, is God aims to renew this broken world. Right? That's, that's one of the differences between Christianity and many other religions. Many other religions might say what we need to do is just escape this broken world Right? Or just give ourselves over to this broken world. But what God is doing is he's aiming to renew this broken world. To renew it. Now, I think if all of us were to take a little straw poll this morning, right? I think we would come to a consensus that this world is broken. <laughs> right? When you, when you watch the news and see the headlines, 
right? You see the natural disasters, the earthquakes that shatter buildings and the tsunamis and that engulf entire cities and the hurricanes and typhoons that dump water and rain and wind and batter and beat. You see natural disasters that take place everywhere, but you also see very personal, very personal expressions of the brokenness in this world. And some of you see it in your own lives, in relationships that you see, in people that you work with. You see how broken and shattered the world is, and the Bible is clear that the reason the world is the way that it is is because of our sin. Like you go back to Genesis chapter three and you see our first parents take of the fruit and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes are open, they cover themselves in shame and they go hide from God. Then Genesis chapter four, you have the very first murder in human history as one brother rises up and slays another. You go a couple of chapters further and all of a sudden there's this big massive flood because things have gotten so bad and so evil on the face of the earth that God has to wipe it out, start over with a new family, Noah and his family. When they get off the boat, Noah ends up drunk in a tent naked with weird things happening with his family around him, right? We don't really know exactly what was going on, but some weird things were going on. And then you fast forward a couple of chapters from that and you get the Tower of Babel that's being constructed as this monument to to humanity's self-sufficiency, that we can do this by ourselves. We can arise to the heavens alone. Right, so you see from the very time sin enters into the world, things get broken and shattered and fractured and things are not the way they're supposed to be. But in verse 15 of Mark chapter one, Jesus says when he shows up and begins to preach and announce his arrival, listen to what he says. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's near, it's right here in your midst. So all this brokenness that has been ultimately will not be one day because God is beginning to initiate this restoration process in human history to turn things back toward the way God intended them to be in his creative, in, in, in the created order. And so that's what God is doing in the the coming of Jesus. He's initiating and inaugurating his kingdom rule, his reign in which things would be set right. That Jesus would rule and reign in the place of the God of this age, right? As as Brian talked to us about last week, in the place of God of this age and in the the lives of those who would come submit themselves to Jesus' rule and reign, the lives of those who would trust in and treasure Jesus, God would begin like a Rubik's Cube that's been all jumbled up. My son has like seven of these around the house because he can't figure out, he keeps buying a new one because he can't figure out how to fix the ones that he's jumbled up. Uh, But like those Rubik's Cubes, God would begin to just turn it and twist it and, and, and move it in the ways that only he knows how to begin to reorder everything to where it's whole and flourishing once more. That's the end toward which God is moving everything. And he's doing so through the arrival of Jesus Christ. See, I'll show it to you in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter seven, John the Baptist, um, he's in prison, okay? Um, He's in prison and he calls two of his followers to himself and he says, hey, listen, go to Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Because John's like, dude, I'm in prison here, and if you're not the guy, like, maybe I can kind of get out of this deal, but if you are the guy, we're going to keep charging forward. And so John sends his followers over to Jesus, and when they arrive, they begin to witness things. They begin to see Jesus. John's followers are there in the presence of Jesus, and they see Jesus heal people of their diseases, their plagues. He casts out evil spirits and drives them from them. He bestows sight on those who are blind. And then, and then in response to their question to Jesus, listen to Jesus' answer. And for those who aren't familiar with the Old Testament, it doesn't sound like much of an answer. 
But for those who know the Old Testament, it's the most, one of the most profound statements of Jesus' identity in all the Bible. Jesus says this. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Listen, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're like, what in the world is Jesus saying? But if you know the Old Testament, and you know Isaiah 35, this prophecy that Isaiah gives about the day that would come in which God would come to save and rule, listen to what he says would characterize that day in Isaiah 35, verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Jesus says, go tell John, that's what you've just seen. That God has come to save and rule. I am the one who is to come. You should not, don't look for another, it's me. That's exactly what Jesus says to them. Now look, when Jesus causes the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the mute to sing for joy, he is fulfilling prophecy of Isaiah 35, but consider what he's doing. He's taking things that are broken and he's beginning to make them work like they should. He's taking mouths that should speak and he's giving them a song to sing. He's taking ears that have been stopped up and are deaf and he's opening them up and allowing them to hear. He's taking eyes that have been blind and he's restoring to them sight. He's taking legs that have been crippled and broken and he's allowing allowing them to leap and dance and run again. He's even beginning to restore relationships and power structures because listen to what he says, go tell John that even the poor have the good news preached to them. So Jesus didn't come to pander to the rich, those who had standing and stature in society, but he comes to serve those who can do nothing, give nothing in return. So Jesus begins to set and order everything rightly in his first coming. He begins the process, he inaugurates his rule and reign. Doesn't consummate it, but he inaugurates it. And he begins to set things right. It's kind of, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the cinematic depiction of C.S. Lewis's uh, children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But there's a scene in that movie that, it, 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 I've watched it probably 30 times. Um, you know, 27 of them for myself and three of my kids. Um, but I can rem- there's a scene in that movie in which the children, whenever they show up in the land of Narnia, what they find is this is a land where it's always winter and never Christmas. And what, he, what Lewis means by that is this. It's always cold and bitter and there is no joy because the land has been under the curse of sin. And whenever they show up into the land, they find that the white witch is ruling the land. And the white witch actually tricks one of the children, Edmund, to deceive and rat out his other brothers and sisters. And while, while, when this happens, the white witch begins to pursue the other children to capture them and bring them back to her castle. And as she pursues them, they are, they're both on sleds and they're racing across this frozen tundra. But what, it, what, what was going on in the, kind of the back story of that moment was this, is that there were whispers or rumors that Aslan, the great king, was coming. That he was coming back to Narnia. And so as even the whispers and rumors of the great king coming to be with his people once again to rule and reign, as the children race across this frozen tundra, they find themselves out in this precarious position on a frozen lake. And as they're racing across this frozen lake, the the, the ice begins to buckle. And it begins to crack. And it begins to collapse. And as they race across to the other side and they find themselves in this, what once was a frozen tundra and field is now beginning to rise up with grasses and flowers and the places where there were no birds in the forest, now they hear singing. What was, what was Lewis trying to 
paint a picture of, this is exactly what Lewis was saying, is that whenever Jesus, the great king, shows up, things that have been broken and frozen and hard and bitter forever begin to melt as God begins to set things right. That's his kingdom coming near. That's his rule and reign being established in the hearts and lives of people as he begins to take things that are broken and fix them and mend them and set them right. He melts hard hearts and he causes flowers and fruit to blossom and bloom in places that were once barren. That's the good news. That God is coming to renew this broken world. And he's doing so in the coming of the king. Now, what he inaugurates will one day be consummated. It hadn't come in all of its fullness, right? It's, it's already, but not yet, Brian said last week. It's here, but we're still waiting on the, the full reality of that breaking into human history. But John paints a picture for us that what one day that would look like in, John, in Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation 21, listen to what John has to say about this day that would come. He says, then I saw the heavens, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now listen, those of you who have been with us for a while know that I have a pretty eclectic taste in music. But one Christian hip hop artist named Andy Minio writes a song that captures the essence of what this is gonna look like one day in a song called Death Has Died. And listen to what he says. He says, one day, my God's gonna crack the sky. He's gonna bottle up every tear that we ever cried. He's gonna bring truth to every lie, justice for every crime that has ever been committed. All our shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. No more broken hearts, no more broken homes. There'll be no more locking of doors and no more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. No more cancerous cells that will take our loved ones. No more hungry kids, no more natural disasters. No child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we wear all black and death will be dead and we'll lock the casket. Isn't that the world that you want? That's the world that we all want, isn't it? That's the world that we all long for, to see everything renewed, to see everything restored. It's the world that we all want, but it's the world that we all realize we do not have as of yet, but it's the world that the Bible says will be one day. It will be one day, and God has come to set that in motion through the coming of Jesus. Now, most of us are like, yes, right? Whether you're a Christian in this room or not, you're like, yes, that's the world that I want. I don't want any more breakups. I don't want any more broken bones. I don't want any more difficulties in life. I don't want any more divorce. I don't want any more scandals. I don't want any more corruption, whether it be in personal or professional world. We want that. But I want you to notice how it's going to come, how this kingdom of God is going to one day finally and fully be realized on the face of the earth. It's not going to come apart from judgment, but it's gonna come through it. And this is where it gets hard. Particularly if you're not a Christian in the room, you're thinking, man, why did I come to church this morning to hear this guy talk about judgment? (laughs) 
because that's difficult, right? It's a very unpalatable term in our culture. In fact, consider this with me. It's like my kids for the first time um, a couple of weeks ago, they've had chicken tenders, right? Every kid has chicken tenders and chicken nuggets all their life. But for the first time, they actually had a chicken thought like leg, right? I know, I know. We just kind of go to the lowest common denominator and just keep funneling food in their mouth, right? Whatever they'll eat. But these chicken legs, right, that we baked in the oven, they were very delicious. And so my kids had needed help kind of pulling all the meat off the bone in order to get to it and everything. I said, look, look, you just pick it up and go and take it like that and just rip it off and shake your head around a little bit. That's how you eat a chicken leg, right? But a part of the chicken leg, right, there is the meat that's there and then there's the gristle or the cartlets that's connected and listen, the, the, the gristle is just tough. It's kind of chewy in your mouth. And as soon as it hits, it, you take a bite of meat, you get a little bit of gristle with it, you bite it off and you spit it out, don't you? And we live in a culture, and particularly even in a church culture that looks at the Bible and says, there's a lot of meat there, but I'm just gonna spit out the gristle of judgment. Because I don't like the, I, I can't palate that. I can't chew that up. But I, I, I want to speak to that here for a moment before we move forward and just say, I want you to know that if you spit out the, 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 what you consider to be the gristle of judgment, you're going to lose lots of things. But one of the things you're going to lose is you're going to lose any objective sense of what is good and evil, right and wrong. And it's going to boil down to just preference. Arthur Miller was a playwright in New York City and he wrote a play called After the Fall and in that play, one of the main characters named Quentin and Quentin was reflecting back over his life and listen to what he says in the play. Miller's not a Christian, but listen to what he says. He says, for years, I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are and how smart you are. Then later on, you prove what a good father you are and what a good husband you are. Finally, you try to prove how wise you are, how powerful you are, and how successful you are. So you live in this argument with yourself and everyone else about how good of a person you are. He says, but underlying it all, I see that now in all my arguing there was a presumption. I presumed that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I don't know what it was. All I knew is I would be justified or condemned for what I had done. There'd be a verdict anyway. And then somebody says, it's so profound. He says, I think my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge was in sight. And all that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, another way of saying despair. Quentin reached a point where he realized, I've been arguing all of my life, trying to prove how good I am, how successful I am, how good of a husband, father, how good of a citizen, how good of a philanthropist, how good of a, what, what, all these good things that I've done, I've been trying to prove myself and everyone else that I'm a good person. He says, but I really, really found myself in a position of despair and I lost hope and meaning whenever I looked up and the culture had taken the judge off of the bench and removed him. To say that there is no judge and there is no judgment. He says, because what I realized was all I was left to do was argue with myself. To try and prove to myself how good of a person I was. Because if there is no judge on the bench and there is no judgment, then here's what happens. It boils down to personal preference. There is no objective standing or reason to say, hey, listen, selflessness is better than selfishness or generosity is better than greed or serving others is better than always looking to be served by everyone who's around you. There is no objective standing to say purity is better than promiscuity. There is no objective standard to say life should be ch cherished and treasured. From the youngest of age to the oldest, there is no objective standard for that. You can say, I prefer 
to be generous rather than greedy, or I prefer to be pure rather than promiscuous, or I prefer, right? But there is no objective grounds for it if there is no judge, if there is no one who's gonna ultimately render a verdict on what is right and wrong, good and evil, true and false. So you will lose any sense of meaning and you can argue with yourself and with others about your preferences, but you cannot make any kind of declarations and say, no, this is good. And let me tell you where that, will, that, that just falls apart is when somebody walks up to you and say, hey, listen, my preference is to rape and pillage your daughter. What objective ground do you have to say, no. <laughs> so you lose any objective sense of good and evil. And some of you might be going, okay, well, I, I kind of get that. But listen, the, 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 the self-identifying Christians that I've seen and interacted with who believe in a judging God who will one day bring judgment, they walk around condemning everyone for everything. Right. They're the people who are holding up signs on TV protesting everything, right? Uh, telling everybody they're going to hell and condemning everyone for everything that they do. I don't want anything to do with so-called Christians like that, churches like that, or a Christ like that. Because some of you think in your mind that for a God to judge, right, to, if we're gonna believe in a judging God, and what some people have done is taken that and they've kind of gone too far with it, right? They've become too fanatical with it. And so they talk about condemning everyone for everything, so why would I want anything to do with a Christ like that? Well, let me, let, me, let me speak to that for a moment. If that's you, if you're in that position, you look around and you see that on the television or you see it in your life and people have treated you that way and they've condemned you, not just said, hey, this, this isn't right or this is wrong, but they've actually condemned you and said, there's no hope for you. I want you to understand something. If you're looking at Christians and that's all your experience and all you've ever tasted of Christianity, I want you to know you had not tasted real Christianity yet. Because you're saying, man, those people have gone too far with Jesus. But I want to submit to you this morning, they haven't gone too far with Jesus. They haven't gone far enough. They have not gone far enough. And here's what I mean by that. They may have repented and turned from their immorality and all the bad things they've been doing, but they have not yet repented and turned from all the bad reasons for all the good things that they're doing. So they've turned from their immorality, but they haven't turned from their self-righteousness. What they've gotten a hold of is a way of doing religion that makes them puffed up and feel really good about themselves in comparison to everyone else who can't keep the external of their lives as clean as they can. But what that kind of religion never addresses is the internal. It never produces humility, it never produces, it never tears down arrogance, but it just fuels it. As we said a couple of weeks ago, it doesn't produce people who look in the mirror and say, I can't believe I'm a Christian that God would save me. It produces people who look in the mirror and go, of course I'm a Christian, God should save me. So if you're here this morning wrestling with judgment, consider you will lose any kind of objective sense of right and wrong, good and evil, but you, you also may have not yet tasted and experienced or seen real Christianity. Because God's gonna bring it through judgment, this renewal of everything through judgment. To get to Revelation 21, you gotta go through Revelation 19 and 20. <laughs> And if you don't know the Bible, that's where Jesus comes back with a sword protruding from his mouth, a tat on his thigh, his robe is dipped in blood, he's got a crown on and coming back to rule and reign and conquer and exercise God's judgment. And then Revelation 20, Satan, all of his followers, uh, the, the, those who have not yet bent their knee to Jesus are thrown into a lake of fire. They are judged forever. And then Revelation 21 ensues on the scene of human history where everything is made right, fully and finally. But God is in the process right now of beginning to set things back in order, renewing a broken world. 
But how does he do it? What is the means that he uses to do this? And I want you to consider with me this one that's in this text as well. It's the way that God does this. It's not, he's gonna rescue a broken world, or he's gonna redeem a broken world, but he's gonna rescue broken people. He's gonna rescue sinners. That's how God is moving toward this end in which everything is gonna be set right. Look in verse 17 of the text that we read this morning in Mark chapter one. In verse 17, Jesus calls Simon and Andrew to follow him and he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Fishers of men. Now listen, Jesus again takes an image familiar to those with the Old Testament and he kind of uses it here as he calls these men to follow him. See, in the Old Testament, bodies of water like oceans, seas, not flowing streams and rivers, but oceans and seas were, were, were seen and viewed metaphorically as places of, of darkness or chaos or evil. And so in the Old Testament, that's in the Hebrew mindset, that's what they saw whenever they saw an ocean or they saw a sea or they saw a lake. And Jesus says, essentially, if you f- come and follow me, I want you to follow me, and when you follow me, you'll become fishers of men because the mission that I've come on is not only to renew this broken world, but it's to rescue broken people who stand already under judgment to rescue them from it. Because notice what Jesus says. When, it, when, it, when he uses this image, he says, you're gonna rescue, you're gonna be fishers of men, you're gonna draw them out of those waters of darkness and draw them out of those waters of chaos and draw them out of those waters of evil. And Jesus says, listen, they're already swimming in the darkness. They're already swimming in chaos. They're already swimming in these waters. In fact, in John chapter three, if you don't know any other verse in the Bible, right, surely you've seen this one somewhere, right? John three sixteen, right? The backside of a field goal kicker at football games. Right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, most people stop there. But if you go on in verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In this conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus, here's the assumption that Jesus has. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save, and the reason he came to save is because the world already stands condemned for everyone who's apart from Jesus. And Jesus comes to rescue us out of those waters of darkness and bring us into light and rescue us out of those waters of chaos and begin to put order in our lives and rescue us out of the waters of evil and begin to work in us in such a way that we become a a, a beacon for hope and, and, and good in this world as his followers. But he says, come and follow me and I will make you the kinds of people, I'll make you become the kinds of people who are helping, being used kind of like bait by God. To, to, to catch and release men and women from judgment. Now notice the command in the text isn't to go and fish. It's not what he says. I wish it was. Because <laughs> I enjoy that. But the command in the text is follow me. And Jesus says progressively, I will make you become these kinds of people. I will make you become these, as you put your feet on the path of discipleship, as you side with me against yourself, and people see someone who's willing to say no to themselves because they're saying yes to Jesus. Or people begin to see someone who's willing to not serve themselves but serve Jesus by serving them in their hour of need. Or they see people who are continually in this, in, in this, in this renewal process of, saying, of turning from sin and thinking that what they think is best and embracing what God has said to be best. And as, as God forms you those kinds of people, as you follow him, you don't know where the journey's going, right? Je- Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, here are the, th- the, the 380 steps of your journey that I'm gonna take you on. Who's signing up, right? No, he says, follow me. 
You don't know where the path is going to take you. You don't know what dead ends you're going to hit. You don't know where it is that you're finally going to come to the end of yourself and have to call out to me and in independence and faith and trust, believe that I'm gonna be sufficient for you and that your hour of need. You don't know where those moments are gonna be, but as you have those moments, God is supernaturally doing something. He's forming you into the kind of person who is God is using to, to, to as, a, as what we would say in, in theological terms, an apologetic for the Christian faith. In other words, a defense for the Christian faith because it, it's not just things that we believe in our head, but it's things that begin to transform our hearts. Tim Keller is a former pastor in New York City and he wrote a book called The King's Cross. In that book, he uses this brilliant illustration and I couldn't match it, so I just decided to read it to you. That'll work, right? Um, And he he writes an illustration about George MacDonald who was an author about 150 years ago who wrote children's books and he wrote a book called The Princess and the Goblin. And he says, "In in the book, Irene is the protagonist, kind of the good guy. Right? And she's eight years old. She's, she has found an attic room in her house and every so often her fairy grandmother appears there. And when Irene goes to look for her, she's often not there. So one day her grandmother gives her a ring with a thread tied to it, leading to a little ball of thread. She explains that she'll keep, she'll keep the ball, the grandmother will keep the ball. And Irene says, but I can't see it. And the grandmother says, no, the thread is too fine for you to see it, you can only feel it. With this reassurance, Irene tests the thread. Now listen, says the grandmother, if you ever find yourself in any danger, you must take off your ring and put it under the pillow of your bed. Then you must lay your forefinger upon the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. Oh, how delightful, it will lead me to you, grandmother. I know, Irene says. Yes, said the grandmother, but remember, it may seem to you a very roundabout way indeed. And you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. A few days later, Irene is in bed and goblins get into the house. She hears them snarling and they're out in the hallway. So she takes off her ring and she puts it under the pillow and she begins to feel the thread knowing that it's going to take her to her grandmother and to safety. But to her dismay, it takes her outside and she realizes that it's taking her right toward the cave of the goblins. Inside the cave, the thread leads her up to a great heap of stones, a dead end. And the thought struck her that at least she could follow the thread backwards and get out. But the instant she tried to feel it backwards, it vanished from her touch. The grandmother's thread only worked forward, but forward it led into a heap of stones. So Irene burst into a, what we would say in our day, a hot mess, right? Into a wailing cry. But after crying, she realized that the only way to follow the thread is to tear down the wall of stone. So she begins tearing it down stone by stone. Though her fingers are soon bleeding, she pulls and she pulls and suddenly she hears a voice. It's her friend, Curtie, who has been trapped in the goblin's goblin's cave. Curtie is astounded and asks, why, however, did you come here? And Irene replies that her grandmother sent her and I think I've found out why. After Irene followed the thread and removed enough rocks to create an opening, Curdy starts to climb up and out of the cave, but Irene keeps going deeper into the cave, and Curdy objects, why are you going there? That's not the way out. That's where I couldn't get out. I know that, says Irene, but this is the way my thread goes, and I must follow it. And indeed, the thread proves trustworthy because a grandmother is trustworthy. See, sometimes in life, God leads us into places and positions when he says, follow me. That's the command. It's not go fishing. It's follow me. 
and he leads us down paths where we reach stone walls and the only way forward is to keep grinding and pushing and pulling down the stone. We don't know why God has brought us there until in a moment we, it dawn, it, it, God gives us grace to realize that he's brought us there, maybe not for ourselves but for someone else. Maybe he shifted us in jobs for someone else. Maybe this relationship that we were in came to an end as we were following him and trying to honor him because of someone else. Not necessarily for ourselves, but God is leading us on this rescue mission as we follow the thread and seek to honor him and obey him and keep moving forward. Not turning back because the thread doesn't go backwards. And not turning aside and going around, but going through wherever it is that the thread goes and we follow it step by step by step. Jesus says, follow me. And you will become the kind of person supernaturally whereby God takes your eyes off of yourself and he begins to lift them up to see his glory. And any time your eyes are lifted off yourself and onto him, you know what you wanna do? You want others to see him like you see him as well. It's kinda like you ladies, right? that stumble upon this great boutique, 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 I don't know how you say it, whatever you say, boutique store. And you go in and oh man, there's a big sale going on and you're rummaging through the racks and finding all this stuff in your size and you go to the checkout counter and you pay and then you get on your phone and you say, you guys should come to right, whatever location, address, this store, they're having a massive sale. You spread out the word because you want other people to share in that excitement and that joy with you. Or those of you fellas in here who find like this great barbecue joint, right? And you go eat there and right, they've got this incredibly tender brisket and right, the fried okra just kind of melts in your mouth whenever you, whenever you taste it. And so you, you blow it out over Facebook and say, man, you guys gotta check this place out. It is the real deal because you want people to share in that with you. And as your eyes are lifted off yourself because you're following the thread and lead, as God leads you, even through dead ends, what seems like detours, what seems like things that will never be resolved, and God's grace shows up and meets you in that moment and your eyes are on him and in worship and in adoration and praise and thanksgiving is you want. And you become the kind of person that helps other people turn their eyes to him as well. He will make you become fishers of men. And to be one who orders their life around Jesus' mission means that you're moving toward God's end, the renewal of this broken world by God's means, the rescue of broken people as he rescues people out of the waters of judgment to enjoy him forever. Now, as we close this morning, I wanna get real practical in two ways and talk about how it is that we, 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 we participate in this. And the first one is this. How is it that we move labor toward this end by this means? And the first one is this. We labor toward this end by living as an ambassador for the age to come. As an ambassador for the age to come. Listen, uh, we have, uh, the United States has ambassadors in countries all around the world. And what they do is they serve our interest in those particular places. They are representatives of our government in those particular countries and nations. All right, let me, let me try and break it down for you in a little bit maybe more familiar way is this. You ever been to the movie theater? Okay, no one has. I, I've been to a movie before. Most of you have not. So let me tell you what a movie theater is, okay? Uh, movie theater is a place where you go and they sell popcorn and candy and soda and then there are these big, you know what a movie theater is. 
Um, but if you go to a movie theater for the feature presentation, whatever movie that's just hit the screens and you walk through the doors and you buy your ticket for the, you know, the price of your, your next born child um, and you go into the theater and you sit down and the, 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 the screen begins to you know, talk about all the popcorn and, the, and turn off your cell phones and all that stuff. But as soon as all those kinds of things, those public service announcements are over, it begins to roll into the previews, doesn't it? Right? And they begin to show trailers for the movies that are on the horizon. Right? So movies are gonna come out you know, this summer, they would show movies for this fall or this winter, this winter for next spring and next summer. And they begin to kind of whet your appetite for these full feature presentations that will hit the screens months down the road. So they show these trailers for kids' movies, for war movies, for action movies, for sci-fi movies, for superhero movies, because there's not enough of those already, right? They show uh, trailers for romantic comedies, because there's not enough of those already. And so you see all these trailers for all these movies, and they're to whet your appetite for the full feature presentation that's coming. It's coming. It's been produced, and they're slowly leaking it out. Listen, if you're a Christian in the room this morning who's following Jesus and and continue to move forward, even through obstacles and even through dead ends and even around things that doesn't seem like there's any way that God's gonna be able to work this out, as you follow him, he will make you become fishers of men because your life will become, as he slowly, supernaturally, progressively begins to form you into a trailer for the age that is to come. You become a person who handles relationships much differently than the people who, who, who you work around and live among. You become the kind of person who handles finances much differently than the person, people that you work around and live among. You become a trailer for the age to come as you engage in being a part of the renewal of this broken world even now and begin to order and set things right. Listen, I thought of a few ways this happens. Christians become a trailer for the age to come whenever they engage in things like disaster relief and help people begin to rebuild homes and lives that have been shattered by natural disasters. Christians become a trailer for the age to come as they labor to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and provide very basic physical and tangible needs in the lives of people. And as, as the world around you begins to see, what is, the, what is the church doing in the middle of all that? What are Christians doing in the middle of all that? Aren't they just concerned about evacuating souls to heaven? No, we're also concerned about caring for the needs of people here and now. You become a trailer for the age to come as Christians labor to tutor and mentor kids in after-school programs. They move toward things like big brother and big sister programs to begin to work with kids who haven't seen a gospel witness in their family for generations. You become a trailer for the age to come as you work toward the end of poverty, abortion, sex trafficking, and all those things that are just, uh, just abominable evils in our particular culture. So you work toward the eradication of those things. You become a trailer for the age to come as you engage and include people of other races, other ethnicities, other nationalities, and people who come from different cultures in your life and open your life up to them. Not just so you can have a black friend or a Hispanic friend, Right? But so that you can engage and be inclusive. Right? The things that divide the world out there would unite us in here. You become a trailer for the age to come. What does that look like in your life right now? As you follow Jesus, your hand on the thread, following him, being a part of the renewal of this broken world. Uniting people rather than dividing them over things they shouldn't divide over. But then secondly, as you follow Jesus, you also become the kind of person who engages in intentional evangelism. 
Because remember, as God lifts your eyes off yourself onto him, you wanna see other people's eyes lifted off themselves and on him. As your life begins to be centered and set on God, you want others' lives to be centered and set on God as well. And so what do you do? You begin to pray for people and you begin to serve people and you begin to share with people. Right, oftentimes whenever we, whenever we come to prayer and we get on our knees before God, we're praying about like our, our, our aunt who has cancer and our dog who is you know, tearing up the house and we pray for you know, our friend who just lost his job and all those things are great. We should pray for, maybe not the dog, but all the other things, <laughs> right? Absolutely, but let me ask you a question. When was the last time you got on your knees before God to petition him for him to rescue someone from judgment that you knew was swimming in the waters of darkness right now? In your own personal prayer life, when was the last time you prayed for someone that you knew to be now under God's judgment? When you get together with your life group and you begin to pray, we said a few weeks ago that a church that is for the city is a church that is filled with people who were prayer requests two years ago, but God graciously worked in their lives in response to his people petitioning him for God to show up and save, do what only he can do. When was the last time in a life group whenever you gathered with other believers and you said, you know what? God's given me a burden for my neighbor. God's given me a burden for my coworker. God's given me a burden for my mom or my dad. God's given me a burden for my brother or my sister. God's given me a burden for the people that I work with in my office. God's given me a burden for this person in my dentist office who cleans my teeth every six months whenever I go. God's given me a burden for these people and I wanna invite you to pray with me for them that God would save so that as he does, we can celebrate together. You pray. And then as you pray for those people, you look for opportunities to serve them and come alongside and and do simple things and do them well and do them with love and do them with compassion and do them with tenderness. And as they see someone who's willing to serve Jesus instead of themselves by serving them, who's following him in the steps of discipleship, then they begin to naturally and inevitably ask questions like why in the world would you give up four hours on your Saturday afternoon to come over and help me fix my car? I've never done anything for you. And that inevitably leads to a conversation of saying there was someone who did something for me when I didn't deserve it, when I never done anything for them. (laughs) His name is Jesus. And so you engage in intentional evangelism because God turns your heart toward those who are still swimming in the waters even as he's rescued you out of them. You pray for them and you serve them and you share with them. So the means God is using to renew this broken world is the rescue of broken people. He's rescuing them from judgment. But I wanna close with this this morning. The way that God does this, listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning and maybe you're just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, trying to figure out what this whole church thing is like and about, If that's you, I want you to understand something, that God, the way that God does this is he's he's gonna renew the world through judgment. He's going to rescue people from judgment, but the way that he rescues people from judgment is not by winking at their sin, patting them on the head, giving them a lollipop and sending them on their way like a good grandfather does. So my grandfather always did. Anytime I did something wrong, he was like, oh, it's okay, just won't tell your mom and dad, here's a sucker, go in in a room and play, right? That's what grandfathers do. (laughs) That's not what God does. The way that God rescues people from judgment is by taking their judgment on himself. By taking it on himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, we find Jesus right before his crucifixion, he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood because he's in such angst over what lies on the horizon for him. And he says, God, if there's any other way, any other way, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, the cup of your judgment, 
which is what a cup was in the Old Testament. It was a cup of, of wrath or a cup of blessing, either one. But in this instance, Jesus is talking about the cup of God's wrath. Let the cup of your wrath, God, the cup of your judgment pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, what you will. And then as Jesus goes to the cross and he's strung out before the crowds, he cries out to his father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to know, if you're kicking the tires on Christianity this morning, here's how this works, is that Jesus was forsaken for you even though you deserve to be forsaken by God. Even though you deserve to be judged by God, that judgment fell on Jesus so that you would know God as your adopted father and that you would be his son and his daughter. That's how Christianity works. And that's the good news that we celebrate here as a church week after week after week. And that's the good news we wanna share with the world day by day by day. So this morning, listen, if you're here this morning and you've, you've never taken that step of considering what God has done to take his ju- your judgment on himself and, his, and this person of his son, I want you to know that there'll be some folks in room five just afterwards who would love to visit with you about that. And if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Christ, you've repented of sin, you've come to see him as your great king and you're submitting your life to him, not perfectly, but progressively, and you're following that thread and you're a Christian here this morning, I wanna invite you to come to the table with us in a moment. Brian's gonna come, he's gonna come now, and we're gonna sing together as we respond to God's word and as, we, as he comes, I wanna invite you to the table. We have the bread and the cup here and what this, what this signifies for us as a church is this, is the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to the table this morning. I don't invite you to the table, he does. He invites you to come and remember his body that was broken for you if you're a Christian. Remember his blood that was shed for you if you're a Christian as your judgment fell on him. It fell on him. If you're not a Christian, just invite you to watch. You don't have to get up and move anywhere, you can just watch and witness as we take of the bread and the cup together and remember the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing and I'll invite you to stand in a moment. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. God, and as Steve prayed earlier and said earlier, it's not by a coincidence that anyone's in this room. Father, for those of us who struggle with the idea of judgment, God, help us to see that it is, it is nutritious and necessary. It's not something to be spit out. Because without it, there will not be a renewal of all things. But God, you have come to rescue men and women out of it. And the way that you have come to rescue men and women out of it is by taking it for them in their place. And if there are folks in the room this morning, Father, who are not Christians, I ask that you, by your grace, would touch their heart. God, open their eyes. God, open their ears, God, because there is a blindness and a deafness that is more significant than just not being able to see with these round orbs in our face or hear with these eardrums that are in our heads. God, there's a blindness and deafness more powerful and significant than that, and that's to be spiritually and and blind and deaf. To have the word of God fall on us and not see it and not hear it. God, would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear? And God, maybe they would repent in faith and trust in Christ. And Father, for those in the room this morning who have done so, God, I pray that as we come to the table, it will be a reminder of what you've done for them, God, but also a reaffirmation of their allegiance to you 
and that you would make us into the kind of people who are trailers for the age to come, restoring and renewing his broken world even now in our spheres of influence and engaging in evangelism that is very intentional through prayer, service, and a gospel witness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.